And how do you tell a director, we want to have your movie be a discounted movie, right? So I get some of the obstacles, but I think that on the flip side, what we were also able to show was that Cinema Day actually had a better box office than the week before. Right. It was an 8% lift on the box office. I mean, that's significant on a ticket price of $3, even for premium formats, right? This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Here once again with my colleague and co-host, Rebecca Polly, deputy editor at Box Office Pro. And in this week's feature segment, we speak to Jackie Brenneman, the president of the Cinema Foundation, an industry trade group bringing in exhibitors, vendors, studios for the betterment of the theatrical exhibition community. Jackie and the Cinema Foundation have just released the State of the Cinema Industry Report that is the inaugural data and research findings of the Cinema Foundation. Jackie and I will be going over the highlights from that report shortly. And for those interested, if you haven't seen it, it's a great report. You can find that over on this episode page, podcast.boxofficepro.com. Look at the show notes, or if you're listening to us on your mobile device, go to show notes. You'll find a link to it right there. Some great insights. But before we get to that conversation, Rebecca, welcome once again. I was going to start this episode by asking you what you saw last weekend like I usually do but I won't because something weird happened we ran into each other I saw you Friday night yeah. in New York City you saw yeah. me <laughs> it was that's how odd. that's how small the city is right yeah Eric and I we were just sitting outside you know trying to you know willing it to be spring willing it to be warmer than it was and you were like booking it and we were both like Daniel Daniel and you had your earbuds in but it all worked out yeah it was, <laughs> it was a small world It was my first time back in the Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn since I was like 26. Honestly, it's been like years and years. But I was there because I was meeting up with friends from 12 years ago, precisely because one of them was getting married in Williamsburg. It was a fantastic evening. Then you do the wedding on Sunday and then you have the existential despair like Sunday night. Exactly. Yeah. Wedding the next day, Saturday, and then existential despair on my life choices on Sunday to cap things off. But a Mexican F1 driver won the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, and I finished the weekend in a good mood. Unfortunately, none of this involves cinema. I didn't see any movies. I have a social life that I take care of once in a while. Did you or were you just hanging out outside of bars in Brooklyn looking at passerbys? Not this weekend entirely, though. That is a favorite pastime. No, I did taxes this weekend, which is... Ooh, exciting. It's yeah. so fun and so exciting. I did not have the energy to go out and actually see a movie in a theater this weekend. So I did end up watching the 1996 direct to, I guess, VHS at that time period, Die Hard ripoff called Skyscraper with Anna Nicole Smith. There's a Die Hard ripoff starring former men's magazine model Anna Nicole Smith. I just hope it's a type of movie that would like go on on Cinemax with the warning label that says gratuitous, comma, graphic sex and violence. That at age 13 is definitely something that I would have stuck around and watched. Yeah. Yeah. Eric was like, oh, yeah, this was on all the time when I was growing up. So apparently <laughs> for, uh, for guys who grew up in America, kind of in our age range, yeah, it was one of those. 
so yeah, while I was uh, at home <laughs> watching mid-90s Anna Nicole Smith direct-to-video action movies, you know, some people were going out to the cinema to see Shazam! Fury of the Gods, but... Yeah, not enough of them, though. Not enough people. Much fewer than Warner Brothers. With, honestly, anyone hoped. We, we hate to make fun, but we have to make light of this because, yikes, this wasn't the great opening weekend for Shazam! Fury of the Gods, the sequel. Fury from of the moviegoers, because they were not digging yeah. this one. But we, you know, we saw this coming. We've been saying it for weeks. We had strong doubts about this movie. All in all, it's a $30 million opening weekend for this title. Could have been worse. Could have been worse. Some of the numbers that were being thrown about before opening weekend were in the high 20s. Ultimately, though, that is 43% behind 2019's original Shazam that opened to 53.5 million. And it is 54% below the last DCEU title, Black Adam. Last year, that opened to $67 million. Didn't really go on to make a lot of money. I think it's going to be... Uh, crawl to the finish here for this generation of DC Extended Universe. That, that B-plus cinema score on uh, Fury of the Gods really isn't speaking to a great legs. Moving on, what does this have to say about the two other DCEU movies we have coming out, those being Flash and the Aquaman sequel? I think there's certainly more hopes surrounding those. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely very excited to see the Flash because it's something that, I mean, if they've committed to it and stayed committed to it and spent this much money on it, it better be good. <laughs> oh yeah, The Flash is the sort of title that after the legal troubles that the star is mired in, you'd think Warner Brothers, especially this iteration of Warner Brothers, would happily pull the plug, but they feel they have something with the title. We saw footage of it at CinemaCon last year. It was very well received. We're going to be seeing more of it. I don't know how much more of The Flash at CinemaCon this year, but you're right, Rebecca. I think there's a lot of pressure for The Flash to be a statement for this waning period for the DC Extended Universe. If it doesn't fulfill expectations, yeah, I think it's going to be the funeral for Aquaman 2 rather than a celebration of everything that came before. Yeah, very concerning numbers here. Now, Daniel, in our March-April issue, you had an interview with the director of the big film coming out this upcoming weekend, your BFF, Chad Stahelski, director of John Wick <laughs> 4. I think you've interviewed him like two, three times at this point. I like these movies, and I like interviewing this guy. Chad Sahelski, fantastic uh, filmmaker, and one of those filmmakers that is just a pleasure to speak to that doesn't mind geeking out and going into the process of, of making your, movie. your interviews are good. You do good, like, geeking out over the evolution of action movies. <laughs> it's not something you can do with every action director, but Chad Sahelski, the filmmaker behind all four of the John Wick titles for Lionsgate, he's a guy that really knows his film history when it comes to this stuff. You can read that interview, as Rebecca said, in our March-April print edition or online, boxofficepro.com. That interview with Chad Sahelski, director of John Wick 4, is up online now for you to enjoy Really good conversation, Rebecca. I'm really excited to see this. I haven't seen this yet precisely because I want to see this with an opening weekend audience. And it looks like it's going to be a really positive opening weekend audience. We have a 59 million to 74 million opening weekend range for this title. This is looking to be a franchise high in the John Wick universe, which is great, especially as Lionsgate is preparing a spinoff title within this franchise. At this point, before opening weekend, we are looking between 150 
the $200 million in a domestic theatrical run when all is said and done. Great numbers for the type of movie that when before the first one came out, there was no real guarantee it would evolve into what it has become. It's become what it is precisely because fans have been able to respond to it. It delivers on expectations. And I think everything is riding very high for this title's release this weekend. Yeah, it's the rare franchise that is not giving us a case of diminishing returns. It just kind of seems uh, it's upping the ante every time in terms of crazy action set pieces and also box office. So Hopefully, Rebecca, it can live up to the straight-to-video 1996 title, Skyscraper that you enjoyed so much over the weekend. We will just have to wait and see. (laughs) Rebecca, thank you so much. Coming up next, we've got our interview with Jackie Brenneman, the president of the Cinema Foundation, going over the trade group's inaugural State of the Cinema Industry Report. We go into a lot of details on everything theatrically coming up after the break. The box office company has developed the tools and services to empower you to take charge of your digital marketing, and we are committed to continuously evolve with the latest trends and provide a seamless moviegoer experience. We are excited to share our latest addition to the Boost ecosystem. Our food and beverage ordering platform streamlines the purchasing process, so concessions are always one tap away. Whether they'd prefer to pick up concessions at the kiosk or have them delivered directly to their seats, Guests can tailor their experience and even leave gratuities for service that keeps them coming back. Contact us to get started at sales at boxoffice.com. And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast with Jackie Brenneman, the president of the Cinema Foundation, that just released a new report on moviegoing. Jackie, welcome. Congratulations on the report, the inaugural report on uh, theatrical exhibitions. Some wonderful data points here that we're about to go into. But before we dig in, why did you decide to take on this project? I mean, the Cinema Foundation is less than a year old, and you just decided to just go all in and provide a lot of data points on this industry. Well, thank you for having me, Daniel, and it's very nice to be here face-to-face with you. Coming to you from New York City here. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, look, the foundation actually is just about a year old. By happenstance, I, I saw that we actually published our report on the same day one year later that we had we had published our announcement of the launch of the cinema foundation and part of our announcement when i looked back at it was a staunch commitment to really investing in credible data that the industry could rely on that could let us know kind of where we are and where we're going right and so coming into 2023 it made sense for this to be a key project to invest in and so We had been working on this for several months, of course, and really trying to talk to different stakeholders and ask, what is the data that would be helpful to you? And the stakeholders, I mean, are not just exhibitors. The Cinema Foundation is intended to be all industry. So it's the studios. It is the vendor community. We're also trying to talk to the agencies, to the talent. We really want to be a source of information that everyone can really look to. And there has been a problem in this industry without with incomplete data 
or or game it, silos. We've talked yes. about this in the past, and I know a lot of studio executives feel this way too. There's a lot of great data out there that companies just kind of keep for themselves that we just don't learn from as an industry. Well, and even the studio's own data can sometimes also be incomplete because all they're looking at is their own information, right? So if you're running a test and what you have is how your test is doing, and you can look at it and think, well, it's really successful. We're making X dollars. And so our solution must be the right solution. But you don't have what some of these other studio tests are really earning them. You don't know if you're actually doing the right thing. And so we're not moving forward in a way that's lifting all of the boats, right? And so the idea here is, let's try to tell a more complete story and to tell it through data. And if someone disagrees with us, if a studio disagrees with us, if a vendor disagrees with us, if an analyst disagrees, let's have that conversation be a disagreement using data, Mm -hmm. right? I think especially in the last 10 or 15 years, many of the changes in our industry have been built on kind of gut instinct hunches people had about where the future was going and where consumers were going. And you ask consumers and they'll tell you, absolutely, give us movies at home, day and date, make them free. That's what we want. That's what they'll tell you. Of course, that's what they'll tell you. I'm going to say that about any industry. Honestly, like if a five-star Michelin restaurant says, do you want to come and pay money or do you want to pay a quarter of the price and I cook in your house? I'll take that, of course. Of course, but, but that's actually not what consumers are doing, right? Right, right. And so we have to stop like, oh, my teenage son said this. And actually, what did your teenage son do? And we need to have a real look into the industry. And so that's, you know, that's where we're at. That's what the report is about. The report is about what do consumers say? What do consumers do? And where are we going? And also, let's change the conversation a little bit. Because I think stepping back, the main way our industry has been framed in recent years has been theatrical versus streaming. Adversarial. 100%. It's one or the other, right? Well, and even just posing those two as the primary adversaries when streaming is about competing with cable. Mm -hmm. Streaming is a new way to experience art in the home, which is a totally viable way to experience things. So to act like the sky is falling because consumers are watching things in the home is insane in some ways because consumers always have and always will watch things in the home and watch more things in the home because we spend more and more of our time in the home. So I think setting up those two as the adversaries when it was always streaming versus other in-home entertainment Mm -hmm. has been really problematic because it has started seeping in sometimes to Again, how our our side, the theatrical side of the industry is valued. It starts to seep into how consumers approach their own kind of Friday night, you know, thoughts. Like, I want to leave the house. Now what do I want to do? Movies have become, in some cases, sometimes, you know, oh, well, I could just watch this at home. Which, again, they always could. And that wasn't so front of mind. Now, the good news is, right, when the movies are back, the audiences are back. That's really, really clear. And the more diverse content we have, the more audiences we bring back. And so I do think we're coming out of the pandemic in a really strong position that way. We've really proven that theatrical is necessary. You go to a movie and you're with your community and you're all experiencing the same thing. Now you may experience it differently and that's why it's art. But now all of a sudden we have these cultural touchstones that you know kind of connect us with our own empathy, connect us with our community and seem to be necessary because... There are endless things to watch at home, more than ever before, and yet people are continuing to go to the movies. 
Why? Because it feels necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the things that I think the, the numbers back up because folks in this industry, especially, you know, I, I, the editor in chief of the exhibition trade publication, <laughs> when I speak, I'll speak emotionally about this industry, but people will look at it and say, okay, he has a vested interest. Right. Same thing on your end, right? National Association of Theater Owners, Cinema Foundation. Don't take it from us. That's why it's important to come up with data and to come up with objective measures to make these points, to make these and build these arguments. And I want to delve into some of these figures because we are coming out of what was billed as an extinction event for right. exhibition globally. Yep. That's what it was. And actually, it kind of felt like it working <laughs> in the trenches to get out of this jam for a while. I remember in the thick of it, there were concerns that, what was it? 40, 50% of screens in North America might not survive. Thanks to the work that you guys did at NATO, it was much less. Only 5% of cinema screens in North America have closed since 2020. And to be completely honest, ask any serious analyst following this industry, that 5% were probably going to close anyway. Uh, and we look at the global figures, it's actually up nearly 6%. So we look at everything what does this screen count globally and even domestically tell you about where we are coming out of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, the screen count question is such an interesting one because, as you mentioned, there's been talk for many years about kind of right-sizing the domestic market, that it was perhaps over-screened and that there were some locations that probably weren't serving their communities because right. they needed significant upgrades or the population wasn't there to sustain it. And we've you know, had lots of different population migration, especially during the pandemic. So, you know, there's some, there's some credibility to that. I don't know what the right number of screens is, but certainly that's been a dialogue for a long time. I will say, though, that there are a lot of companies in the United States that are expanding their screen count, right? There are a lot of growth-minded exhibitors out there. We polled our members last year at our annual summit. So this data is not in the report because it's more of just kind of a, a temperature check. And a full third of them said that they were going to expand their screen count. That's a significant number. And you can see in their report, it's not just about increasing screen count. It's also about increasing the quality of those screens, right? So exhibitors are overwhelmingly investing. And during the pandemic, mind you, when it w did feel like, is this the end or not? Exhibitors put their money in there, right? So they people, like lots of companies have better seats now than they did before the pandemic, better screens, better sound. So there's been actually a lot of investment in, in that sector and it's growing, right? And then when you talk about internationally, absolutely, there are markets that are still not mature like the United States and they're growing. And we had really interesting information kind of out of Nigeria, for example. Nigeria did better last year than it did in 2019. Wow. And that's partly because it was under screened before. Uh -huh. And so they've grown screen count. It's also partly because they have their own domestic film market. So they had more titles. And so again, when movies are there, audiences are there. They had more movies and they had some more screens. So they had more audience. Japan too was, you know, barely off from 2019 last mm -hmm. year because they have such a strong domestic market. And there, there are a few other territories like that across the globe that really did very well last year and are, and are poised to do just continually better. But yes, there's, there is still some screen growth happening. And we, we just saw the news out of India, right? The, 
the new kind of PVR merged company is, is hoping to do double digit growth. I mean, that's, yeah. there's a lot of optimism. Yeah. And Ajay Bijli from PVR Inox is going to be speaking at International Day at CinemaCon. I'm really looking forward to that keynote address he's going to be giving on that first day on just seeing how that Indian market is recovering. Another yeah. example of having the titles from a domestic production line fill in the schedule. And we're getting there. If we look at what the average gross per title was on films that were released in more than 2,000 screens, pre-pandemic, 2019, and in 2022, it's actually right there. We, we, it's actually up, if anything. So the, the figures here from the report is the average amount of money that a movie released in over 2,000 screens made in 2019 was around $90 million. In 2022, it was 91 million. Yep. The movies are grossing if they're hitting screens. There are concerns, and I've talked to a lot of independent exhibitors over the last year of saying, it's not only that movies get released to theaters, we need that. A lot of wide releases now are hitting 1,400 screens, 1,500. They're not getting to small town USA the way they used to, the 3,200, 3,300 screen release. How much of a concern is that, do you think, for exhibition moving forward, looking at the data you have? Look, I mean, certainly I'm going to always be concerned if there's an exhibitor who believes that they can make money on a title and they're not getting it. I think some of those concerns will kind of remedy themselves naturally. I think there is just still some trepidation coming out of the pandemic that the studios had. No one wants to you know, make a mistake. No one wants anything that looks like a bomb. So I think there's some hedging but luckily, we're really seeing so many of these success stories instead, right? I mean, the kind of the Paramount few, the, some of their success stories with titles that were supposed to be streaming that then they moved theatrically. Yeah, like movie Smile. like Smile, exactly. And 80 right? for Brady. Yeah. I mean, 80 for Brady is such a great success story, right? Because, you know, it's a, such a specific market that they were going for, a market that everyone thought was not coming back to the theaters. But because of Top Gun and then because of Elvis, you know, the over 35 demographic of women were actually coming back. And so, and then the movie tested really well with an audience, right? Mm -hmm. Paramount put it out and they were willing to do that. And that's a very brave move right now, right? Yeah. To, to really publicly experiment like that. But because those things are working and because one studio is able to kind of do that successfully, it gives more comfort, I think, to the rest of the industry. And it gives exhibitors also, importantly, the data to say, hey, look, we did well on this title. So I think we'll do well on that title, right? You need those comps to be able to defend, you know, your request for a showtime, right? So I think giving exhibitors more of that information that they can then use as comps is going to be really helpful too. One of the things that really stood out for me in that Paramount release of 80 for Brady earlier this year is something that Paramount did that I think we may be seeing a little bit more in approaching ticket pricing differently, right? And this is something that, you know, Chris Aronson, president of domestic distribution over at Paramount has been saying for a long time, should every movie cost the same amount. And they actually worked with some circuits to adjust the pricing on that title. Now, I know I'm talking to a lawyer from National <laughs> Association of Theater Owners. I'm not going to get you in jail by asking you the yes, sort of collusion nice. questions. But there are some aspects here that I think we can comment on in pricing, specifically in that while the average ticket prices may be driven up by the influence of premium large format screenings, of that differentiator from the home, of that luxury auditorium, that one auditorium in a 10 screen complex that's going to drive opening weekend audiences and push the average ticket price up, 
there is also a counterweight to that. There are more discount days, there's subscription. And most notably, there's a new initiative that the Cinema Foundation rolled out last September, National Cinema Day, which is a nationally coordinated discount pricing day. Now you have the final accounting here of what those numbers were. So let's get into that because that's that's in this report. What is your total assessment of the impact that National Cinema Day, a national discounted cinema day had in 2022? Yeah, so National Cinema Day is such an exciting and interesting kind of test case. And you're right, I'm not gonna comment on one price or another, but what I will say is consumers are looking for value. And when they are going to the theaters, you're right, they're also choosing overwhelmingly the more expensive ticket price. They're picking PLFs. And that's why exhibitors are investing in that because consumers feel like they're getting a lot of value out of this. There are other screens that they can go see in at, you know, they are choosing those experiences overwhelmingly. And that's really great. And they're, they're doing that because they see a value, but you're completely right. There's another side to that too. Value goes up and down. And so what National Cinema Day, you know, 2022 is really interesting because that was our first time doing it domestically, though there are similar types of initiatives that have happened around the globe. And what we knew going into that, just kind of looking at the data, was that those initiatives, and of course those existed long before the pandemic, had always not only driven attendance on that day, but driven attendance afterwards. And in some territories, studios were willing to actually debut content on those days, right? Like we're going to unveil a new movie you know, not maybe all showtimes, but, you know, selected showtimes on that day to really get some of the, you know, tastemakers to come out and see it. Now, for 2022's National Cinema Day, almost all of the movies had been in the marketplace for weeks, if not months, right? Most of those titles were also available in the home. So, you know, people could see them arguably for free or, you know, the no extra cost at home. And we had half a million dollars and about four and a half weeks to put this together. (laughs) And we assembled an incredible team of people that believed in this and were willing to work at the budget that we had. And it brought over 8.1 million people Mm -hmm. to the movies on a single day. Most of those people bought their tickets day of. People picked up the story on their own. It was the National Cinema Day hashtag was used over 20 million times on TikTok alone. And that was the other thing that we did that I think was really interesting was that it was the first time ever that the industry collaborated on an initiative to kind of leverage all of our social media, to leverage all of the loyalty programs, to leverage the studio's, you know, followings on a single message, right? Mm -hmm. Almost everyone shared this, you know, over the six day advertising period that we had, six days, and people really felt like it was their own. And I went to the theaters that day and the conversations were all like, this is such an awesome thing. Mm -hmm. People were talking about all the different movie marathons they were going to be doing that day. But on the pricing point, you know, we were offering a value, but not necessarily something cheap, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because again, these people could watch, you know, all of the audience could watch this stuff for free. You're competing for free, right? Right. So instead, but what we saw were so many families came out, right? The family titles, basically all morning to that tea afternoon, the family titles were significantly over-indexing. And, you know, then, uh, then the more adult titles dominated the evening. But really, I mean... The family titles that run the market, there's room for more of those on cinema day. We know that for sure. Mm-hmm. And it also tells a, it asks, it does pose a question, right? Is there room to have a different price point 
eight weeks into the run, 10 weeks into the run. I don't know the answer and I'm not going to pretend to have it. I think what we need to start with first are questions Mm -hmm. and then we test the questions and we we come up with answers. I think we all have to be willing to engage in some of this, right? And and interestingly, Cinema Day didn't have, there weren't a lot of new titles coming out right after, which hopefully there will be this year since we have an incredible amount of titles this year, uh, 50% growth over last year. But people still said that people went to the movies more because of Cinema Day. A quarter of the people that came out to Cinema Day hadn't been to the theaters in years. It's hard to do discounts in our industry. We're not set up for experimentation, right? We we don't have very many suppliers. It sends an unclear message sometimes to consumers. If all the movies are one price and one is cheaper, is it because it's not as good? Or one's more expensive, I think it's easier to say, this movie's, oh, this must be really good because it's Mm -hmm. more expensive. And how do you tell a director, we want to have your movie be a discounted movie, right? So I get some of the obstacles, but I think that on the flip side, what we were also able to show was that Cinema Day actually had a better box office than the week before. Right. It was an 8% lift on the box office. I mean, that's significant on a ticket price of $3, Mm -hmm. even for premium form. That, That is a very low ticket price, objectively low, and the... And the box office is up and the box office is up on Sunday too, right? So it wasn't just the fact that people wanted only the discount. It was the fact that we were reminding people of going to the movies that made them really excited. And some people didn't want to be in the theaters when it was as crowded as it was going to be on National Cinema Day or they couldn't get a ticket. So they bought a ticket instead for Sunday. And we saw a lift that went kind of there was a halo that lasted for a while and you can see it in the report just all the different territories experienced similar lifts right the, their their national cinema day box office was incredible but the days after also went up and promoting movie going is not only something that, that helps obviously our partners in exhibition our partners in studios it's also something that helps the streamers something that, that we saw in the report is that relationship that just beneficial relationship of having a theatrical release boost up a streaming release down the line. Listen, I'm not going to ask questions about Netflix too much. We know that's a relationship in process, but I think it's telling. It's not what we wanted. That Glass Onion release is not what I think any of us would have wanted ideally, but it's an important first step where Netflix, a company that makes its entire revenue from streaming subscriptions, saw the value of putting a film in theaters, of testing this out to promote a streaming release down the line. We saw this time and time again happen in 2022. Can you go into some of those insights? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's really important at the outset to say that streaming and theatrical are part of a life cycle of movies and are part of an experience that people will have, right? So the questions we need to be talking about are how do we maximize the value for everyone, right? And I think there was a question for a while was, you know, can we maximize the value of an individual title by going straight to consumers Mm -hmm. where they don't have to pay extra? They don't have to pay a la carte for an experience. And I think very clearly the answer to that was no. You know, during the pandemic, when people couldn't even go to the movies, when movies were going straight to the home, consumers were still choosing instead movies that had already played in the theaters before, right? And so with that in mind, how do we all help each other? And we've seen, you know, now all of the the streaming platforms have their top 10. You can find that information, kind of it's all public. And it's overwhelmingly theatrical titles over and over and over again. The only titles that are like kind of cracking that top 10 for weeks at a time that are straight to streaming are those genres that have been 
largely missing, right? So comedies or action adventures, rom-coms that people just aren't seeing enough of in theaters because they're just not there. Those ones are kind of cracking it. But once you've got a genre that does well in theaters and is supplied, people are choosing the theatrical. And then they're also enthusiastically choosing it in the home, maybe for the second time, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 10th time for Top Gun. (laughs) Um, But either way, you ask a consumer, what do you want? There's a, an NRG report, a future film report. And the question posed, or the headline really is, oh, consu- more consumers want to see things streaming than in theaters. Mm-hmm. Where would you rather see a movie? The underlying question in the small print is, all things being equal, where would you watch a movie? And all things being equal when you're talking to consumer means paying money to see it in a theater or watching it for free in the home. And they were also asking this question, during the pandemic, when there was a safety concern also layered on top of that. And so consumers said one thing, but their behavior said a different thing, right? It said they were choosing theatrical and they had that choice. People were going to those movies. Mm -hmm. And yes, then they were also more excited about watching them at home, but they did not mind waiting. And I think that's another really important point, which was that at the birth of streaming, in the beginning when there was, you know, one or two players, the kind of thesis that they had that they were kind of telling us in exhibition was we have these subscribers and these subscribers pay us every month and they expect that we give they expect for us to give them exclusive access to our art that we make and so how on earth can we put a movie in theaters and tell them that they can't watch it that they have to wait they're going to be mad at us and they're going to not want to be a subscriber but that of course turned out not to be the case No one has ever been mad at Disney for putting a Marvel title in theaters first and making them wait. No one yelled at Paramount for making them wait 88 days to see Top Gun. The consumers were not confused and they were not mad. In fact, it made them feel like there was more value to their streaming subscription because they had this thing you had to wait for. You know, it's basic human psychology that somehow we have glossed over or forgotten about that when something is feel scarce or exclusive people will wait for it they will value it more if, if things are feel very you know all you can eat if you will consumers don't necessarily value it as much and so if you're going to invest in a title and you're going to invest in all that marketing it makes so much more sense to put it in a theater first mm-hmm. really give it the robust marketing and the exclusivity it deserves. I'm not going to tell you how much exclusivity. That is certainly something that would put me in jail. Um, and I don't know the answer to it either. I don't think anyone does. I think everyone should really be asking those questions. What is the right number? Not what's the right number that I thought five years ago, but knowing what I know now and having the ability to say, you know what? I was a little wrong on this. Let me like relook at this, I think is going to help move us forward. Because piracy is still a major factor in coming up with these decisions. I'll tell you an anecdote. We're at CinemaCon last year where John Fithian takes the stage and famously says, day and date is dead and piracy is what killed it. There was a little bit of a pushback from uh, my other colleagues and other trades to that sentence, but you actually showed up with the receipts in the Cinema Foundation report. Let's go into that. The impact of piracy in theatrical exclusivity, in day and date, what did you find in that? So first of all, you know, we weren't even the first to publish piracy data. Two weeks before our report came out, Variety had a giant piece about this as well, (laughs) right? 
And what they put in their report that we didn't even put in ours was that the quality of camcords was so bad, it was actually driving people into theaters to watch the movie in a better way. So I'll step back and I wanna go back to the before times for a second. Because when I entered this industry, the two things that I was told for the reason to shrink the window generally and to, to really like, you know, push the home audience was there were two, there were two arguments. One, that studios didn't want to have to market the same movie twice. I can debate about that, but I'm not an expert on marketing and I haven't seen those numbers. So I would believe that I will take that at face value. And then the other was piracy. There was a, right. a strong theory that a shortened window would alleviate piracy because mm -hmm. there was a belief that there was something called the dark window. And the dark window is when something, I know. It, <laughs> so who comes I up know. with this stuff? That's wonderful. So the, the dark window is when something was not in the theaters anymore, but we have, was not yet at home. And there was a belief that this dark window was where piracy happened. Now we had data at that time that showed piracy spiked with availability. So there was a spike when it was first in theaters and you would get the camcords. And then there was an even bigger spike, even then, even pre-pandemic, there was a bigger spike when the DVD came out because it was a higher quality. Mm -hmm. So you get a higher quality rip, usually like a DVD that fell off the truck a week early. Like that would really exacerbate piracy. We were kind of confused by those arguments in some ways, but... That was about an old technology. That was about DVDs. Now, there's still some DVDs out there and I get it, but that's not what this, the streaming conversation is certainly not a DVD conversation, but we're having old arguments about these new technologies. And so those two key points have proven to not be true, right? Marketing, you certainly do not need to spend nearly as much money marketing a title when you're debuting it on your platform. You have instant access to your consumers. If you want them to watch something, you put it on the homepage, right? You have the ability to do that. I, each company can make their decisions on how they do that, and what algorithms they use and what have you. I just do think that there are all of these opportunities. So the marketing's there, but this was because of piracy that this conversation came up. And, you know, that's what we've seen. We've seen that piracy is exponentially exacerbated by a digital release. And that the best way to stave off piracy is a theatrical window, you know? So talk about old arguments and new technologies. Let's just remember that now the theatrical experience is the best bulwark against piracy. And that is, that is objective, clear data. We did not commission this data. We do not own Muso, which is a company that does all this real deep dive into data on piracy. It's there. And, you know, we, again, we, the foundation is not just exhibition. So we shared this report with other stakeholders. Mm -hmm. We shared the, the findings with, we asked the studios for input, we, you know, the, on their release numbers and all of that. And we've given it to them afterwards. And we gave an advanced sneak of it to the MPA so we could make sure that they, they knew what we were going to be saying. We don't want to surprise anyone because we're not here to fight. We really do want to discipline the discussion because I fundamentally believe, and maybe I am after all of this, I'm still an optimist, but I fundamentally believe that if we invest in good data, the data will tell us all that we should invest in our humans. We should invest in the human experience. And that means we should invest in theatrical and it will make every other viewing experience feel more social, even if you're watching something alone on your couch.
And that was Jackie Brenneman, the president of the Cinema Foundation, going over the inaugural State of the Cinema Industry Report. You can find that report on this episode's show notes at podcast.boxofficepro.com. Or if you go into the episode notes of whatever mobile device you're in, you'll find a link for it there. Click on it, download it, some great insights there. Once again, thank you to Jackie Brenneman and to my co-host, Rebecca Polly for joining us in this week's episode. The Box Office Podcast returns next Thursday with a new episode. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, like. This show is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. We will see you again next week.